So our text this morning is the book of Jude. This is the word the Lord has for us today. Jude, beginning in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Let's pray. As we come before you today, Lord, and before this text of Scripture, we come with faith. We come believing on your name. We come taking you at your word. We come before you just as we are trusting in your love for us. Holy Spirit, illuminate these verses for us today. We place ourselves under the authority of your word. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Well, we come to almost the end of Jude's very short letter today. As I was preparing this week, I had originally planned to cover the end of the book through verse 25, and uh, my notes, though I could tell by the length of them that we'd be here way too long, especially on a, on a warm summer Sunday, um, so we'll, uh, and I want to give verses 24 and 25 their, their due attention, so we will pick those up next time, but uh, we're getting close to the end, and remember that this is a letter that Jude has call, uh, written to us to call us to contend for the faith. This body of truth, this teaching that defines Christianity, but it is a body of teaching that is a way of life. And so the content of the faith and the behavior of the faith come together to make up the faith, what we hold to as God's people. And this contending, this fighting for the faith is necessary because the faith is threatened in fact, Jude is so urgent that he has, he has foregone writing the letter that he originally intended to write so that he could write this letter to call us to contend because the faith is threatened, and it's threatened by false teachers, teachers who pervert the truth for their own lusts, for their own greed, and end up bringing others under the judgment that they will certainly face. Jude says they are covert, they are deceitful, they have crept in among you, meaning they have pretended to be godly, they have pretended to be reliable guides, but they are really predators. And we saw last time that Jude exposes them as defiant, destructive, and ultimately doomed. Which leads us to ask the question then, what false teachings do we face today? What are some examples? I, I quickly threw out a couple of examples of the types of false teachings that we 
have faced. But I want to highlight just a couple that uh, I think are prominent. These are prominent false teachings that threaten the church today. The first is what we call the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. And I highlight this one because of how pervasive it is in our culture. And by the way, the prosperity gospel is not just pervasive in our culture. It began in America, but it has, it has spread to the world. As the nations of the world look to material prosperity as the answer to their woes, the prosperity gospel takes root. It goes by other names. It could be called the health and wealth gospel Um, It has some others, but it essentially teaches that God's will is that you be physically healthy, materially wealthy, and personally happy. That that's how you measure the Christian faith, whether or not you are pleasing God, whether or not you are really under God's blessing, and it twists key Christian teachings and terms like faith. What does it mean to have faith? It will say that faith is to name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. It also takes this teaching of blessing, what it means to have God's favor, and it recasts Christian living as positive thinking. You say the right things. You do the right things. You're always positive. You have a high self-esteem. It plays on our vulnerability to suffering. The fact that we, we cannot escape the reality of suffering. It makes promises about how can we can avoid it and why we must avoid it and what it means for our walks with God if we're not avoiding it. It plays uh, to our Comfort, our desire for comfort, for success, for self-importance. Some of its top teachers are Joel Osteen, Robert Tilton, Joyce Meyer, T.D. Jakes. It is a false gospel. It is false teaching. Ultimately, it is motivated by greed. And it fits many of Jude's descriptions here. So I named this one because it is so prevalent, and out of it comes a myriad of churches and organizations and quote-unquote ministries that revolve around coddling us and our desires, our greed, our lusts, our self-centeredness, and sin. A second one that I want to highlight, though it doesn't have a name, or at least I haven't seen one, I'll call it the LGBT compatibility teaching. Now, I know that there is these days a Q and a plus at the end of those letters, but I just, I can't say all of those letters, and different letters are being added all the time. The lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, plus. This compatibility. Now, for Years, the LGBT movement has employed agendas and tactics and politics and public morality and and entertainment. 
But my concern is how the church has compromised. That's what's really alarming. Now, it doesn't surprise us when we look at churches that have abandoned the Bible and the authority of Scripture. We would expect them to embrace the sexual revolution, and they have. They've thrown their arms wide open to it. But the real alarm for me is where more Bible-minded churches are beginning to succumb to the teaching that a person can maintain a homosexual or same-sex, the, the term homosexual, you, you just almost can't keep up with it. The term homosexual, by the way, now is derogatory, I guess. But this homosexual or same-sex identity and the Christian identity are compatible. That they can be one. That the LGBT culture and the Christian faith are compatible, that the church has done the LGBT community wrong by saying that someone who identifies as a same-sex-oriented person must choose between Christ and their LGBT culture. And let me be clear. I'm not saying that a Christian can't struggle with same-sex attraction and desires. Okay. In fact... Some of you do. Some of you will struggle with those. And I believe the local church should be the place for someone to share that, to, uh, to find compassion, to receive counsel, to be loved, to not be shunned and cast out. And yes, many churches have far to go in knowing how to love how to come alongside those. But when I say the word struggle and compassion and counsel, those words presuppose something, don't they? They pre presuppose that same-sex actions and practices and desires are sinful, that they're wrong, and that a person who is struggling with those, is someone who is in need of transformation. Just like everybody else who is struggling with any kind of sin, which is all of us to some degree. But that they are in need of transformation. That neither the lifestyle, nor the culture, nor the identification are compatible with the Christian faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. And anyone who advocates that they are compatible is a false teacher. That is false teaching. And it may be the issue on which the true Christian faith lives or dies in the decades to come. Well, these are exactly the kinds of teachings that Jude is warning us about. And by the end of verse 16... We are left with the question, okay, contend for the faith. These deceivers and their teachings have been unmasked now. Judah's exposed them. And we come to the question, well, how do I do this then? How do I contend for the faith? How do I persevere? I want you to see here in Jude, verses 17 through 23, a strategy for the persevering saint. 
Strategies for the persevering saint. Now remember, in verse 3, Jude has said said that it is the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints, God's people. And you say, I'm not sure I'm a saint. If you belong to God, you're a saint. (laughs) No matter how much you're struggling with sin, you're a saint. You are set apart to him. So it's the saints who have received it, and it is the saints that must persevere in the faith. We are called to persevere. That's what Jude is after. This is one of the great tensions in Scripture, because we know the Bible is very clear that our salvation does not depend on us, that it depends entirely upon grace, what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ on our behalf for us. We could have never earned it. We could never have bought it. We could have never somehow attained it. We know that it's by grace through faith that we are saved. But don't forget the through faith. We must persevere in faith because the Bible especially the New Testament, also calls us to persevere. It says that we must persevere, that we must finish the race. And so from a street-level perspective, we see people drop out of the race. We see people walk away from the faith. From a street-level perspective, anybody is vulnerable to false teaching. And Jude is saying that this false teaching seeks to undo us, especially without us knowing it, to subvert us. And therefore, we have to contend. To contend means to persevere. So we see here that Jude gives us six strategies for persevering in the faith. The first one is this, stay vigilant. Stay vigilant. Judah's already demonstrated from some Old Testament passages God's judgment on sin, especially uh, God's judgment on those who corrupt his people by deceiving them and leading them into sensuality. Jude now points to Jesus' apostles themselves. This is apostle is the title, the honor given to those 12 who walked with Jesus, who met him resurrected, who were given and received divine revelation. They were granted Jesus' authority to found the church. Sometimes the, the New Testament word apostle can refer to others as well, and the word itself just means sent one. But here Jude, I think, is referring to the 12 apostles who spoke with God's authority. They were the ones who once for all delivered the faith to the saints. In fact, this is the connection Jude is making. The very apostles who, by Christ's authority, delivered the faith are the same apostles who have warned us that these pretenders would come. And Jude identifies them again here. This is kind of a summary. He's unmasked them in verses 8 through 16. And now he he gives this summary They are scoffers following ungodly passions. This word scoffer is a a rare one in the New Testament. In fact, the only other place it's found is in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, 
where Peter writes that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Oh, please, you're telling me that Jesus will come again, that he will return, that God will judge the world. Well, look, our, our ancestors have been dying for generations. It's been thousands of years, and nothing's changed. So what makes you think that God is going to actually, quote, judge the world? This is mockery. This is scoffing. It is unbelief. And false teachers, in their teaching and in their subversion of the faith, they are scoffing, they are mocking God, which means they have no sense of the fact that they will be judged. The scoffer is condemned in the Old Testament as one who treats God with laughing mockery or derision. That's why Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, begins with this blessing on the man who sits not in the seat of scoffers, doesn't ally himself with them, doesn't join up with them, take their their position and worldview on things. And note the connection between the scoffer and destruction in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 22 and then verse 26. How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have, gone, uh, and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. You laugh at God's warnings. You laugh at his, at his gracious correction, at knowledge. God will laugh at your destruction. So false teachers who deny Christ, deceive his people, and spurn God's warnings of judgment are scoffers. They're scoffers. It is these who cause divisions, Jude says. And what Jude is getting here is not just that, that false teachers as scoffers somehow cause people, uh, God's people to argue with each other and disagree. There is that. There is that kind of discord that is sown. But it's, it's, a, it's a bigger picture of that. It's these false teachers, it's these scoffers who tear the church apart. Like tearing a piece of, of paper or fabric, you just... As you hold one half steady and you yank on the other, you rip it apart. You divide it. You separate it. So there are those in the church who are vulnerable, and they join any new wind of teaching that blows. But there are those who stand firm in their faith. There are those who resist, and what that ends up doing is tearing the church. They divide God's people. And so these scoffers pull vulnerable Christians away from the church. They tear the fabric of God's community, of his people. 
They are worldly people, devoid of the spirit. Worldly, they're soulish, they're natural. This is the opposite of spiritual. No matter what they claim, no matter what they pose as, they're worldly, they're devoid of the spirit. These scoffers are bound to the world. They have no connection to God at all. So Jude has in mind here the warnings of the apostles regarding false teachers. The deliverance of the faith came with these warnings. Stay true. Keep to the faith. This is why we're giving you a body of teaching, a lifestyle as God's people. Because there will be those who will come along and will twist it, manipulate you, subvert your faith. Scoffers will come. They will tear the church. Why? Why does Jude, why point us back to the apostles' predictions? Vigilance. Stay vigilant. If the apostles warned us, then we shouldn't be taken off guard. It shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't be naive. We shouldn't just accept things because someone says something. You go back to the scriptures. Is it sound? And I think there's comfort here too, isn't there? There's comfort here. They may seek to disrupt God's plan for his people. They may seek to uh, work against God's work in his people. But God is still in control. His church is still intact. The proof The apostles' warnings that such scoffers would come and that their destructive efforts are still not beyond God's providence. But be vigilant. vigilant, Sorry. Be vigilant. And where we encounter the destructive ruin of heresies and deceivers, be comforted. Don't be naive, but don't be intimidated. Don't be baffled. So first of all, stay vigilant. Secondly, fortify your faith. Verse 20, fortify your faith. Building yourselves up. This is a a command to build yourselves up, to strengthen your grip on, to hold fast to, to, to fortify our position in something. And here it's your most holy faith. So you can see that the faith becomes our faith. They're the same thing. Our faith is a a bastion under siege. It is set apart to God. It is unique. It is precious. And it is under siege. And if we would contend for it, we must fortify our position. How do we do that? First of all, it means tearing down. It means tearing down. That is sin. It means confronting, dealing with sin in our lives. See, God's work in your life is a renovation. Remember that. He's renovating you. He's changing you. He's transforming you. You must tear out the old to build up the new. This is the opposite direction of the false teaching. The false teaching is driving you away from a holy faith. It's driving you away from that. And Judas saying, you've got to do the opposite of false teaching, deal with sin, confront it head on. 
You can't build your faith if you're not dealing with the sin, the transformation. But then you must also add to your faith. You must also add to your faith. Now, Peter writes to us about this in 2 Peter chapter 1. I don't have these verses up front, right? Because I added them in my thinking this morning. But 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says this. Listen carefully. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What's Peter saying? He's saying the Lord has given you as his child and us as his church everything that we need to be godly. Everything that we need to find life and pursue a godly life. That's been granted to us. We're never without the resources. And because of this, this is verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And then he gives us this chain with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be fruitful, grow, you have to be adding. These things have to be increasing. And you notice these things are not just gaining knowledge. It's not just studying and understanding truth. We must do that. But Peter's talking about this lifestyle that to add to your faith is not just reading. It's not just data. It is living it out, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, affection, love. If these things are yours and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter says, if things, things aren't increasing in your life, you have reason to question you need to look at the sincerity, the validity of your salvation. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You'll never be subverted. And you notice, again, it's not just doctrinal equipping here that will keep you from falling it's how you live. It's how you live out this way of life, the faith. All right, back to Jude. You build up. You build yourselves up in your most holy faith by developing and adding to the foundation, not abandoning it. This is why Crossway, we talk about growing and we talk about serving. It is imperative that we grow. We must grow in our faith. And that is partly going deep in truth and understanding the faith as it has been delivered to us. And it is consistently growing and increasing in right living. We're to gain a deeper and deeper understanding of the truths of the gospel. We're to resolve to pursue biblical knowledge 
and we're to resolve to live it out. So to build up, to fortify your faith, you go deep, you tear down, you go deep, and you build up, you increase. When false teachers pervert the truth, we are to, on the other hand, tighten our grasp on the faith, fortify ourselves. When scoffers deny the lordship of Christ, when they push sensuality, when they excuse unrighteousness, you, on the other hand, resolve all the more to renounce sin and pursue godliness. Thirdly, third strategy, pray in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. Again, look at verse 20. Praying in the Spirit. Prayer is not just talking to God. It is communing with Him. That's how I want you to think of it. It's communing with Him. And that communion is a means of preserving ourselves. It's a way of of contending for the faith, persevering. In contrast to those who oppose God and are devoid of the Spirit, we who have the Spirit of God are to commune with Him. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Apostle Paul in the book of Romans is saying, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. And if you don't belong to Christ, you can't have the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Spirit is a mark of the true people of God. This makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's the Holy Spirit who strengthens us. It's the Holy Spirit who nurtures us. He indwells us. The Bible teaches us that he seals us. He preserves us. He illuminates our understanding of truth. He gives us discernment. So to pray in the Spirit is to rely on Him then. And it's this humble dependence on Him that guards us from falling prey to deceitful teachings. I think that's what Jude has in mind. We're to be praying in the Spirit, prayerful. And you will often see prayer and watching Join together. Be watchful in prayer. That watchfulness in prayer is part of the vigilance I was talking about. So to be praying in the Spirit is part of this vigilance. It's part of this communing with God that helps you persevere. This is just one reason many that we should be a people practicing prayer. And Jude has the community in mind here. It's not just private prayer, but it's we as a body be praying together in the spirit as a way of persevering. Strategy number four, verse 21, keep yourself in God's love. Keep yourself in God's love. Verse one tells us that we are beloved in God. We are being kept for Jesus Christ But we must participate in God's great love for us by keeping ourselves in his love. Here is this tension. Again, we are being kept, and yet here we are with Jude telling us to keep ourselves in his love. 
God has accomplished all that is necessary for our salvation in the person and work of Christ, and we must respond to God to know that, that salvation and secure it. Just as an example, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, we, we see this dynamic at work. Think about what Paul writes here. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Isn't it by grace? Aren't we the people of God? Our sins are forgiven. Why are we to work out the salvation? Isn't it secure? By the way, we're going to talk more about the security of our salvation next time when we're in verses 24 and 25. But isn't our salvation secure? Why are we to work it out? Why are we to work out our salvation? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. There you go. God is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the reason that Paul gives that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling is because God is the one doing the work in us. It's almost as if to say that this renovation is holy ground now. God is at work. He's working this out. He's sovereignly at work in your life. You're to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Jude's words here, though, are much more similar to Jesus' words in John chapter 15, verses 9 through 10. We looked at these a couple of weeks ago, and we'll come back to them here today. Jesus is with his disciples. It's the upper room. It's the night before he's crucified. He's telling them he's leaving. They are distressed, not understanding what he's talking about entirely. Ask some questions. Jesus has to clarify. In the midst of all this, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Stay in my love. He's saying, don't abandon and leave my calling and that I have loved you. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus abided in the Father's love by keeping the Father's commandments. Remember that Jesus, as a man, the second person of the Trinity, incarnate now, is dependent on the Father. Jesus says this many times throughout the Gospels. I watch what the Father does. I do what the Father tells me. He is modeling and living out the perfect submissive life to the Father. He is fulfilling the law. This is actually what he's doing. And the only person who could ever, because he's sinless. And so he has kept the Father's commandments. And what he's saying is, you abide in my love if you what? Keep my commandments. This is not legalism. Legalism is adding to the commandments. Legalism is setting up our own system of righteousness. This isn't just a, a, a check off the box, jump through the hoop religion that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about abiding in his love. 
you can't love him and abide in his love and not obey him. The commandments here that Jesus is talking about, that's the faith. That's the faith. And part of the reason I say that is because of the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says, going into all the world, making disciples, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, obey all that I have what? Commanded you. That's the faith. That's exactly what the apostles have done. They have taught us to obey all that Jesus commanded them. That is the faith that is once delivered to the saints. Jesus' commandments were precisely what the false teachers were not doing. Therefore, they were spurning God's love, not keeping themselves in it. To keep ourselves in God's love is to keep obeying him. It's to continue finding our spiritual nourishment from his love, not outside of him. You can't separate God's promises from his instruction, his grace from his commands. That is the faith. That is the way of life. That is Christianity. So that's the fourth strategy. Keep yourself in God's love. Strategy number five, Wait for Christ's mercy. Verse 21 again. Wait for Christ's mercy. Hold out for it. That's what Jude's talking about. He looks to our deliverance at Christ's coming as the, the apex, the culmination of Christ's mercy toward us. Because we already know his mercy, but he's saying there's a future, greater, complete mercy to be fulfilled. Our final redemption will be the full expression of his mercy on us. And so we wait, we, we hold fast for, we anticipate, we even long for it, this great and full mercy. This is not the kind of waiting for your flight at the airport where you're sitting, you've checked in and you're sitting and you're just waiting because you knew you had to get there early because you had to get through all of the security and now you're sitting and you're waiting and you're trying to kill time. This is the kind of waiting, say, that of an outfielder in a baseball game where you have to be always ready. That ball is going to be hit to you. You know it's coming. And you have to, you're waiting, but you're anticipating, you're looking, you're focused. That's this kind of waiting. It's, it's expecting. Judah's saying, be ready. Be ready for his mercy in such a way that your entire life is conformed to this readiness, to this expectation. No, there's mercy coming. And I think Jude zeroes in on mercy here because mercy captures God's love for us in contrast with judgment. Mercy is the opposite of judgment. The judgment, that, that punishment, that reckoning. Mercy is the withholding of that. And those who are waiting for Christ, who are found in Christ, who have the spirit of Christ, we are expecting mercy in that judgment. Mercy, verse 21, leads to eternal life, whereas judgment leads to eternal what? 
punishment. The one whose longing is fixed on the promise of the full and final mercy of the Savior will not be taken in by cheap and empty rivals. That's why Jude says this. Set your hope on his, his mercy. You can't, you can't think it's going to be mercy if you don't believe there's going to be judgment. I'm setting your hope on his mercy, waiting for it. Keeps in front of you that, that everything else is hollow, it's empty, hollow promises of satisfaction. Don't fall for those. Fix your hearts and your minds on this mercy that will be yours in Christ since it's his mercy that will deliver you from judgment. Finally, sixth strategy, rescue others. Rescue others. Verse 22, Jude's words make it clear that there are some who will fall. There are some who are going to get sucked in. They're going to fall prey. There are those in the church who will, who will be carried off by these wolves in sheep's clothing they are in grave danger. And the danger is not the danger of just falling into the error of the false teachers. It's the danger of falling into God's judgment because they have fallen into the error. How should we respond to these victims of deceit, the victims of false teaching? Well, it seems like Jude identifies three groups of victims here. I base this on his use of the words those in verse 22, others in verse 23, and others again, that each of these is paired with a command. You have mercy on those. You snatch others, and others you show mercy to with fear. So first there, this is, have mercy on those who doubt. The, the perverting of God's grace will cause some to waver. That's what this doubt is. It's waver or be divided in their commitment to the faith. Divided or torn. They will call into question God's judgment of sin and the need for holiness. Those who hold fast may be tempted to, to shun or cut those brothers or sisters loose. You're wavering. I can't, I can't help you. You're wavering. And Jude says, have mercy on them. Show compassion, understanding. Don't cut them loose. Win them over with mercy. This is part of loving others. When we talk about loving others here at Crossway, one of our core commitments, we're talking about, part of that is going after each other, showing mercy to each other when someone falls into error or misunderstanding of truth. Mercy isn't harsh. Mercy isn't insulting. It's not derogatory. Mercy is compassion. Show them mercy. Win them back. Help them to see where the error is going. The second group seems further gone. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. So these have followed the false teachers so far that they are in grave danger of judgment themselves. And you say, I don't understand. If they're a Christian, how could they be in judgment? Well, if you flip it around and look at it from the back side, you would say, well, someone's maybe is not a Christian. They're not a Christian then. 
But you can't know that from the street level. You just see someone, you take their profession of faith at face value, and they say, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, but I'm going down this path. The reality then that we're looking at is snatching them. So close are they that to win them back to the faith is like snatching a stick out of a fire. They're already beginning to blacken and smolder. <laughs> Snatch them out. Quickly, act swiftly. In fact, it is the snatching, I think, that is part of the reason Jude is writing in his urgency. He sees it as necessary because some of those who are going to read his letter need to be snatched out of the fire. But even to those who have left, those who have fallen into the error, show mercy. This is kind of, I think, the third category Jude is talking about. Show mercy, but with fear. What's this fear? Fear of God. Fear of God because of the subtlety and the charm of the deceitful teachings. Fear how easy it is to be sucked in. Make sure that you are fearing God as you show them mercy. Show mercy, but even hate the garment stained by flesh. This is a very graphic phrase. He's talking about uh, the undergarment that gets stained by the body. This is a caution against accepting the sin as something less than defiling and sinful. We want to love the person, but we've got to hate the false teaching. We've got to hate the error. We don't ever compromise that even while showing mercy to the person. So we have a responsibility to rescue others, to help them. That's hard sometimes because it means being vulnerable. That means putting ourselves on the line. It might mean risking at times a, a friendship or a relationship. But Jude calls us to do that. That's what true love will do. It'll rescue others. So these are six strategies then that Jude lays out here to go about persevering. And as we think about Jude's warning and the dangers, we need to be exhorted here then, right? We need to be pursuing these things, keeping these things in the front of our mind, keeping ourselves in God's love prayerfully, building up our faith. This is what... Keep on keeping on, Jude says. Focus on these things. They will preserve you as you persevere in the faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of our praise. Lord, you are worthy of our pursuit. You are worthy of of our faithfulness and our steadfastness. And Lord, your gospel is worth fighting for. It is worth persevering in. You have called the faith our faith that is most holy. It is of eternal value. Lord, we know that this world is passing. Lord, we know that the only things that are eternal are your words that you have spoken and, and preserved for us and the soul of the person sitting next to us.
That's all that's eternal. And Lord, the faith is worth fighting for. And we ask that you would, you would aid us, you would help us in being faithful. And Lord, it is with joy this morning that we exalt you as the one who has saved us and called us to yourself. In your name, we proclaim all of these things and make these requests. Amen.